Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here wanting to welcome you to my series on Ruth, The Big Little Love Story. We're going through the Cinderella story of the Old Testament in six weeks with two amazing characters, Ruth, a Moabite gal who was widowed, Boaz, an older, wealthy, affluent, single guy, they fall in love, get a little bad counsel from a gal named Naomi, and God works it all out so they can get married, have a baby named Obed, and through him would come another guy you might've heard about, his name is Jesus. You're gonna love this love story, and I thank you for your prayers, I thank you for your support and your gift of any amount as we get God's word out to God's whole world. Thanks a bunch, Pastor Mark out. All right, if you've got a Bible, go to Ruth chapter four if you've got a Bible, and let me catch you up on the story if you're new. The story begins in a town called Bethlehem. It's uh, basically over near the temple, Israel, God's people worshiping God there about 3,000 years ago. It literally means house of bread. And because God's people were being disobedient, he withheld some of his provision and a famine hit literally in the place named the house of bread. And so families had to decide how will we respond? What will we do? One family was led by a man named Elimelech. He was the husband and father, and he had a wife named Naomi, and they had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And he made actually, tragically, faithfully a bad decision. He moved his family all the way to another country called Moab. And Moab is a place that God's people were not supposed to live. There weren't opportunities there to worship God, to learn the scriptures, to to be in God's presence, to be with God's people. And so he made this foolish decision to relocate his family, only thinking about the economic needs, not really the spiritual needs of the family. And so the family ends up in Moab. They're there for roughly 10 years. And the two boys reach marrying age and they marry two Moabite women, which is not what you're supposed to do. These women worship a different God, different religion. This is not the way it's supposed to work. One of the gals' names is Orpah, the other's name is Ruth. And then tragedy hits, Elimelech dies. And not long thereafter, his two sons die. So now what you're left with is three widowed women no children, furthermore, no plan or provision for the women. There's no life insurance, there's no inheritance, there's no plan. And so they are left absolutely broken emotionally and bankrupt financially. So Naomi, the older woman, she decides that she's gonna return to God's people in presence and make the journey back to Bethlehem, hoping for a fresh start. She encourages Orpah and Ruth, her two daughter-in-laws, to return to their home, return to their family, return to their God. So Orpah does, and Naomi has this conversion experience where she commits herself and covenants herself to walk with Naomi and to get back to Bethlehem and to ultimately worship God's people and to be in God's presence. So these two very brave women make this journey roughly 30 miles back to Bethlehem. And now they're in a a really precarious position because um, they don't have any finances and they don't have any food. They're really in a desperate place. And so they remember that the Old Testament provides something called gleaning. And so if you owned a field, you would literally leave the margins for the marginalized and those who were poor and in need would then come and glean. They would take some of your profit from your harvest and they would take it home as a way for them to have food for their family. So this is the Hebrew equivalent of like a soup kitchen or a food bank. And so Ruth is going out 
for her and Naomi, and she's looking for a place to glean. She's hoping that God will provide. Some of you have been in that desperate place where you don't have any money, you lost your job, you can't make ends meet, you're feeling that anxiety, you're feeling that stress, and you're even worried about feeding your own family. Um, some of you have been there, some of you are there. I grew up in a home where my dad was a union drywaller and he would work hard to provide for our family, but there were times that there was no work and literally there wasn't food in the house and we were in a desperate position. They find themselves in that position. And it says, lo and behold, in God's providence, Ruth ends up at the field of a man named Boaz who happens in God's providence to be a distant relative. He speaks kindly to her, he provides for her, he's generous toward her, he even seats her at his lunch table on one occasion and he feeds her. And you kind of get this indication, this might be going something somewhere, this could be the potential relationship uh, that would really answer her future and give her some hope and a blessing. And then six or seven weeks goes by Nothing happens. He goes to work, she goes to work, they pay their bills, they do their laundry, they work their job, absolutely typical, normal life, nothing happens. And it's nearing the end of harvest season. And when that happens, she can no longer glean in the fields because there won't be food to glean. He'll be done with business and go home. They'll part ways and it'll be over. So last week, based on Naomi's questionable counsel, Ruth gets in front of Boaz and she basically tells him, you know, I don't know if you've thought about marrying me, but I've thought about marrying you. Maybe we could get married. Do you wanna marry me? Now, in so many words, that's what she says and does, which 3000 years ago was bold and brave. And Boaz says, well, that's a really good idea. I would love to marry you, but we have this problem. When, when someone dies, the people and property that are part of their estate are to be cared for by the closest, nearest living male relative. And Boaz is saying, that's not me, that's some other guy. I don't have a right to marry you. I don't have a right to take care of you. I don't have a right to live happily ever after with you. I need to find a way to work around this legal obligation, this contractual negotiation. So that's where we pick up the story and we're gonna learn about providence, planning, and prayer. And we'll start with providence in Ruth chapter four, verse one. Now Boaz, so there he is, good godly businessman, older guy, leader. He's got a company that's had an economic downturn for a decade. They've had a famine, now it's harvest time, his business is coming back. He's finally looking at a return on his investment after patiently waiting for 10 years. And Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. So this is where they would transact business. Oftentimes when we think of ministry, we think of a synagogue or a temple or a church, a holy building for God's people. In this book of the Bible, there's no synagogue, there's no temple, there's no church. Everything that happens pretty much happens at work, at work. Some of you are gonna get up tomorrow and you're gonna go to work. And you need to know that that is a sacred place and God has ministry for you to do there. And God wants you to not just see that when you come here, you're in his presence. When you're there, his presence goes with you. And so the book takes place at work and it takes place in court. And so this is the equivalent of their business court. This is where you would negotiate and transact deals. Um, here, if your 
real estate goes into default, they'll auction it off. And sometimes literally on the courthouse steps, you go there and it goes up for auction and the highest bidder can get the land that's in default. That's not dissimilar to the situation that is here. And so he is now transacting business. He is um, contracting a legal negotiation for the obtaining of a piece of property and the legal right to marry a widow. Sometimes as God's people, we think, is business godly? Is, is the law godly? Is it okay to negotiate a contract? Should we negotiate out the deal terms? Should we seek to get a return on investment? And the answer is yes. Because here it is in the Bible, God is going to put a negotiation, a real estate negotiation, and also a legal resolution in the Bible as a case study from a godly man, how we are to conduct ourselves when it comes to business. So he went down, he sat there, and what he needs to do is he needs to meet with this guy who's in first position. How many of you have bought a house and you put in your offer and it was too late and you were in second position? and somebody else is in first position, meaning if they execute the deal, they get the house and you're out. And you're sitting in second position wondering, how can I get into first position? We'd really like this house. Is there a way to negotiate so that I could get into first position? He is in second position to obtain the land and also to marry Ruth. And so he goes and he sits at this place where business is transacted and conducted. And behold, Shazam, can you believe it? How lucky is he? Uh, the Redeemer, Mr. What's-His-Face, of whom Boaz has spoken, came by. We don't know his name. The Hebrew literally says Mr. What's-His-Face. So Mr. What's-His-Face comes by. It just so happens that he's sitting there. He's like, I hope I can marry Ruth and I hope I can get that land. I hope that guy, up oh, there he is. Howdy. This is God's providence. And I've told you this, uh, but let me repeat it. God works through two proverbial hands his visible hand of miracle, his invisible hand of providence, his supernatural hand of miracle, his natural hand of providence. And sometimes when we think of God's work, we think of God working in some extraordinary way, not an ordinary way. So some of you have maybe even been discouraged. You read the Bible and you, and, and you wonder, where is God in my life? Because you see God working in extraordinary ways with people, for example, like Moses. Moses is out in the middle of a desert. I'm sure we're all familiar with that. And there's, you know, sort of a, a bush and the bush starts talking to him. How many of you have not had that experience? Or if you had, get help, right? Uh, the bush speaks to him and he says, I'm the Lord, here's what I'm gonna tell you to do. Okay. He goes in, he, he, he sees the incredible supernatural provision of God. Unbelievably so. Um, he goes and prophesies that there'll be all these plagues. And there are. Um, he wants to hear from God. He goes up on a mountain. God literally takes, you know, tablets and writes down 10 things for him to do. You pretty much know what God wants you to do when he writes it down on a rock and hands it to you. Furthermore, he, he has problems. So like Moses shows up with a whole bunch of people that are fleeing from the Pharaoh and he shows up at a, at a river, you may have heard of these, um, they're, they're bodies of water and, and he shows up at one. And what, what happens to the river, the Red Sea? It literally just parts. How many of you have not had that experience? So sometimes we read the Bible, we're like, God, that was amazing. Why don't you do that for me? 
why don't you show, send an angel? I'd love to meet one. Tell me what to do. Go left. There's a parking stall predestined for you at the front of the target. You just wish God would tell you where to go, tell you what to do. God, send a miracle. Could you, could you do something extraordinary? Could you show up? Could you prove that you're real? Could you make yourself known in my life? And it doesn't happen. You wonder, God, are, are you even involved? Do you even care? Do you even exist? The story of Ruth, the book of Ruth, is one in which no angel shows up, no miracle happens. God never speaks and thunders a word. There's no flaming chariots heading up to the sky. It's just people going to work. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's people going to the grocery store, getting their food, bringing it home, cooking dinner and going to bed. It's people transacting business. It's people paying their bills, trying to help their friends, trying to look after their family. It's incredibly normal. There's nothing abnormal. It's incredibly natural. It's not overtly supernatural. And God's at work through his unseen invisible hand of providence. God is at work. And oftentimes we don't see God's providence through the windshield, we see it through the rearview mirror. Some of you can look back on your life and say, oh, I didn't know that's what God was doing. It wasn't an accident that we lived there. It wasn't an accident that I met them. It wasn't an accident that I went to school with them. It's not an accident that I got that job. It's not an accident that at that job I met them. It's none of that's an accident. That's actually God's providence. And sometimes we'll say things like, I got really lucky or as fate would have it. But ultimately God would say, you're welcome, because he was behind it all. Do you get that? So what I want this to give you is hope, hope. People say you need food, water, air, and shelter to live. I would add hope. You gotta have hope. God, are you involved? Do you care? Are you doing anything? Yes. And what we see over and over and over is God's hand of providence. Let me explain providence. Providence means two things, that God is sovereign and God is good. So if God is only sovereign, but he's not good, that's not very helpful. You're like, God, you're in charge, but you're not nice and you're not safe. That's not helpful. If you only believe God is good and you don't believe God is sovereign, say like God loves you, God cares for you. He just can't do anything for you because he doesn't have authority and power. Providence is taking these two great truths, bringing them together. God is sovereign. He's in charge, he's in control, he's in power, and he's good and he's loving and he's merciful and he cares. He wants to help and he does, that's providence. And that God works through the details of our lives. So we've seen this in the book. This is one of the great themes. So in chapter one, verse six, it said, the Lord visited his people and gave them food. Now it didn't look like God did something unusual because God didn't just drop food out of the sky. God sent rain. The rain produced the crops. The people harvested the crops. They took it home and ate it and God provided the food but he did so through natural means, not necessarily overtly supernatural means. It says this in chapter two, verse three, when Ruth is trying to figure out which field should I glean in? Where is safe? Where could I go to work? How could I provide for um, Naomi and I? It says, and she happened upon the field of Boaz. Well, she happened there by God's providence. God didn't send an angel. God didn't lead her with a cloud in the day or fire at night as he led Moses. She just so happened to stumble into his will. 
Um, in addition, we read in chapter four here, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. Boaz is in second position. Mr. What's-His-Face is in first position. He's hoping to get into first position. He sits down where business is transacted and who walks by? Mr. First position, it's God's providence. I want you to trust in God's providence. I want you to hope into God's providence. And I want you to understand that right now we live by faith in God's providence until by sight we see how God has provided. The old pastors, especially the Puritans, they would use an analogy of a loom. Now, I don't pretend to do a lot of knitting. I'm just gonna put it out there. I don't claim to be an expert, but my, my mom does a lot of knitting and my daughter does some knitting and I, I have seen some knitting on television. So uh, let me share with you my insights about knitting. You're welcome. Okay, uh, how many of you do knit, by the way? Any of you knitters, you use a loom? Okay, both of you, that's good. It's a start, okay. Um, I saw my mom when I was a little boy and I've seen my daughter cause she's real crafty and handy working on a loom, knitting things together. Now, if you flip the loom over and you hold it up and you look at it from the bottom, what do you see? Just sort of dangling edges, knots. You don't really see a pattern. It's not very lovely. It's not very beautiful. In fact, it's hard to understand why someone would put all that effort and energy into it because it doesn't seem to be really accomplishing anything. Now you take that same loom and you hold it down and you look from the top, what do you see? A picture, a portrait, you see a tapestry, you see intentionality. You're like all of those knots and all of those threads, from the bottom, they don't look like anything, but from the top, you see everything. Right now, we live under the loom and God lives above the loom. And so we can, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why is this not working? This doesn't connect with that. I don't see the picture. I don't see the plan. I don't know your providence. Where are you? What are you doing? This is just, this is a mess. This doesn't look like you know what you're doing. That's how we live by faith. We say, you know what, God, I trust you. You're above it. You're looking down on it. You see it. And the Bible says that we see in part and one day we'll see fully that one day when we're seated with Jesus up in the heavens, we'll look down at life, not only our life, but all of human history and we'll say, I see it. He knew exactly what he was doing. He, he threaded this all together. All of those disparate parts, they were brought together in a beautiful tapestry. And I see the picture of God's providence. And then we worship him forever because of his great splendor and his great creativity. And what's happening for them here is they are needing to trust in God's providence. They're not married yet. Um, they don't have a baby yet. They haven't lived happily ever after. In fact, there's a massive legal obstacle for them to have a future together, but they're trusting in God's providence and they're seeing it with this man. And, and here's what I want you to know, that God works out all things for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28. Genesis 50, 20, this guy named Joseph goes through some really painful life circumstances. His family, brothers reject him. They leave him for dead. He's separated from his father. He's thrown in a hole. He's taken out. He's wrongly accused. He's thrown into prison. His whole life is complicated. And in Genesis 50, 20, he stands before his brothers and he says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. The point is that God takes everything in our life 
every thread and he weaves it together in his providential plan. And as a result, it's beautiful in its time. That's what Ecclesiastes says, that God makes everything beautiful in its time. And there will be a day that we see our life from God's perspective and we are grateful for his providential provision. So first I need you to hope, I need you to trust that God is sovereign and good, that he does have a future, a hope and a plan for you. And his providence is working itself out in your life, even if you don't necessarily see it. So what happens then is he trusts in God's providence and then Boaz needs to make a plan. And so the story continues in Ruth chapter four, the second half of verse one through verse 10. So Boaz said, turn aside friends, sit down here. He sees the guy walking, hey, 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 good to see you buddy. Hey, long time, nice to see, hey, have a seat. Let's talk about something, let's transact business. God puts a real estate negotiation in the Bible because they matter and they're part of God's plan. Um, and he turned aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city. So this is like convening court. This is doing business. This is their way of overcoming legal hurdles and obstacles. This is like getting your CPA and your attorney and you know the land surveyor and the appraiser and everybody's involved in the deal. And said, sit down here. So they sat down, then he said to the redeemer, so the redeemer is the man in first position. And the way it would work is when a man died, the people in property in his estate, they were then the legal responsibility of the closest living male relative. Well, the redeemer is the one who is supposed to take care of the land and he's supposed to take care of the ladies. And so he sits down and Boaz is trying to negotiate himself into first position. And so he lays out the terms of the deal. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Okay, now you need to understand how desperate this is. Family land didn't belong to one generation. It was supposed to belong to all generations. So land would be inherited, handed off to your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your great-great-great-grandkids. This was a way of assuring we have a place to live, that we have a means of income, and that we have a business to hand on to the family. How many of you have inherited a family business? You're in the process of creating a family business. So the land was a place to live, but it was also an income source. And so your family would grow up on the land and then they would inherit the business, which means if you lost your land, your family had no future, it was over. So this is, this is a desperate move on Naomi's behalf. But her husband is dead, her sons are dead, she has no grandchildren. And what she's saying is, I have lost all hope, I have no future. So I will sell the land at a, at a fire sale. When somebody is in a desperate, weak negotiating position, and it's as if they foreclosed on their home or their land or their real estate, and it goes up to auction and bidding, then whoever wins that is probably gonna get a really good return on investment, right? This is like the economic downturn, the double dip hit here in 07, 08, and all of a sudden people are short selling and fire selling their property in their home. Those who default find themselves in bankruptcy. And if you had cash in pocket, you could go to the courthouse steps. There would be an open auction and you could get real estate for pennies on the dollar. That's the circumstance she finds herself in. She is in a desperate position. 
And so Boaz explains the terms of the deal to Mr. What's-His-Face, says, here's where she finds herself, okay? So the deal continues. So I thought I would tell you about it. I don't know if you heard. One of the keys to negotiating a deal is to know as much as possible and know more than the other side, okay? Somebody says, is this godly? Yeah. He's not doing anything sinful, he's being wise. He's doing all of his homework and Boaz understands business. He understands balance sheets, profit and loss statements. He understands return on investment. He understands his real estate portfolio. He is an accomplished seasoned businessman. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of the people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you and he said, I will redeem it. He says, okay, you're in first position. I'm in second position. Naomi needs to unload the short sale of her property. Um, if you want it, take it. If not, I'll take it because I'm in second position. How many of you have put a bid in on a house? You're in second position. You really want to get into first position because you want to close that deal. That's where Boaz finds himself. And so Mr. What's-His-Face says, really? Real estate for pennies on the dollar? I'm in, I'm in. And then Boaz says, oh, by the way, let's get into the finer points of the contract, right? Let's get into the deal points. Let's negotiate the specifics. So he does. Uh, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, oh, I forgot to tell you, there's a couple other things that are part of the deal, part of the deal. Uh, first of all, you get uh, Ruth the Moabite. I know you never met her and her whole family comes from a line of incest and they all worship a pagan demon God and she's not even supposed to be here, but her husband died and she has no children, so you get her too. How many of you would not take that deal? You're like, I, I'll sell you my house, but I still get to live there. No, I don't think so. Um, furthermore, he also will pick up Naomi, the bitter widowed mother-in-law. Okay, now this changes the real estate deal, amen? I'll sell you my house for a good price, but I get the bedroom and my bitter mother-in-law gets the other bedroom and you could sleep on the couch. You're like, that is a variable that changes the strength of the negotiation, amen? You can have the house, but we're not moving out. And by the way, we're hungry. So go to the store and get us something to eat. And since we're both widows, you're gonna need to take care of us for the rest of our life. So I see Boaz is really good, like negotiating the deal. He's like, uh, so, oh, by the way, how, how's that? Mr. What's-His-Face, uh, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. He said, well, that's, those are deal points I can't, I can't ascribe to you. Lest I impair my own inheritance. What he's saying is, if I go home and tell my wife, I have good news and bad news. I got us some really good land and another wife and a bitter mother-in-law, so. He's like, I don't think my wife, I don't think it's gonna go good for me. Furthermore, if he buys all of this land, provides for these two women, takes Ruth as his wife, and they have a child who grows up to get all the land. The child. So, he's, so here's how Boaz tells him the deal. If you would like to spend a lot of money and take care of two women and then give all of the real estate assets to her potential future son, that's the deal. So the guy's thinking, wait, wait, wait a minute. So I get land and two women, and then I take care of the women, and then I give the land away? What kind of deal is that for me? 
That's because he's looking as an investor and not a husband and a father. There is a difference when you look at a deal as an investor versus a husband and father. Mr. What's-His-Face is like, I don't want that deal. Boaz says, that's the deal that I want because I wanna be a husband and father. So he has a different lens by which he's looking at the deal. In our day, some people will say, why have kids? Why get married? They just cost money because that's God's blessing, not God's cursing. That's God's provision. That is God's honoring. And so Boaz, he holds in high regard the ability to be a husband and possibly a father. And he doesn't see this as an expense. He sees this as an honor. The other man just sees it completely in deal points and negotiation. He says, this isn't a good deal on my balance sheet. This doesn't pencil out. The return on investment is not great. And here's, here's what he's seeing. He's seeing Ruth as a problem. Boaz sees Ruth as a princess. See, ultimately, the one man cares about the land. He doesn't really care about the woman. The other man cares about the woman and really he's not motivated by the land. He's already got land and his business is doing fine. He has employees and they all sing to him. It's amazing, right? His life is going good. And so he is looking at this in terms of love and legacy, not just profit and loss. Isn't it amazing that we can look at some people as a problem and other people see them as a princess that ultimately some people would look at us as God's people as a problem and God looks at his church as his princess. That's, that's Boaz's heart in the deal. He's not doing anything illegal or unethical. In fact, he's being very, let's use the words of Jesus, shrewd. Jesus says we need to be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents. When it comes to business and the marketplace and negotiation, sometimes God's people are innocent, but they're not shrewd. They're a little naive. Sometimes God's people will go so far as to think that business or transactions or, um, or, or negotiating a deal or getting lawyers involved or accountants involved. Some people would even perhaps teach, you know, that's not very godly, that's kind of worldly. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because there are three major themes in the Bible, sin, suffering, and stewardship. You could take the whole Bible and it fits in those three themes. That ultimately God deals with our sin through his son and that God comforts us in our suffering. But then there's also the issue of stewardship. What do we do with our money and our real estate and our business and our portfolio and our family? And do we have life insurance? And do we have a plan for our family? Do we have, do we have a will in place? Have we buttoned up ourselves on the personal and the professional side and all three matter? And so you're gonna see that through this couple is gonna come Jesus. He's gonna deal with our sin problem that Boaz is helping alleviate for Naomi and Ruth their suffering problem. And the way he's doing it is by being a good steward. So I've told you before, but you either love money and use people or you love people and use money. And he's gonna use people to love Naomi and Ruth. And I want you to see that this is part of God's way of providing. And sometimes we get into this sort of hyper-spiritual perspective where, where we just think, you know what, lawyers and accountants and budget sheets and balance sheets, that's all very worldly. I'm just gonna trust the providence of God. You need to trust the providence of God and make a plan. And Boaz is a guy with a plan. 
And let me submit this to you. He has been a good businessman. During 10 years of economic downturn and a famine, he has somehow maintained his company, kept his land, waited for a rebound and pocketed enough profit. I'm sure he was good in his giving to God and generous toward others, but he was able to set aside enough cash that he had some money on hand in case an opportunity provided itself. Do you see that? Because if, if it would have become available to buy the land and to obtain Naomi and Ruth, and he didn't have the financial wherewithal, if he didn't have the margin, if he didn't have the cash on hand to close the deal, his intentions were for naught. So we all need to learn this. Run your business affairs, button everything up, get your will, negotiate your deals, run your profit and loss, tithe to the Lord, be generous toward people, set money aside so that if an opportunity presents itself, you can execute on the deal quickly because he is going to very quickly pay cash for an entire estate. That's a guy who has margin. He's put his life together in a wise way. And so he says, take my right of redemption yourself or I cannot redeem it. The guy says, he's like, I'm out of the deal. You're in first position. And Boaz is ready to close, right? He's, he's not like, let me pray about it. 120 days of prayer and fasting. You know, he's ready to close today. He, is, he goes into the deal knowing what the terms are, knowing the end that he wants. And as soon as the opportunity provides itself, he executes the deal legally, functionally, practically, quickly, he gets the deal done. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one who drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Let me explain. For us, this is a little weird, like what's going on here? Well, what they would do, they'd wear sandals. And then if you wanted to buy a piece of land, what literally would happen is the two people entering into the negotiation, they would go out to the land and they would literally walk it. Okay, you get everything to the tree, Everything alongside the rock wall, uh, that crick over there, that's yours. Okay, do we agree that this is the plot of land? And they literally would walk the entire piece of land and survey it. This is like getting your Alta survey if you're dealing in commercial real estate, or this is like getting your home appraisal. This is pulling up your lot boundaries. This is bringing in your home inspector, right? This is confirming, okay, we now legally agree on the size of this parcel of real estate. And after walking it, the one man would take off his sandal and say, I no longer will set foot on this piece of land. It is not mine, it is yours. Hand the sandal to the other man. And he would put his foot down. He'd say, I now take claim of this land. This is like a notary public today. This would like a deed of trust. This is like your closing documents that are all signed and sealed and recorded you know, in the county office. This is all the legal business transaction of the day. Your contracts are spiritual. Your home is spiritual, right? Your deal points are spiritual. Your negotiations are spiritual. Your interest rate is spiritual. All of this is part of God's doing. We're not dealing here with a prophet or a pastor or a priest, just normal people. We're not in a synagogue or a temple or in a church. We're in a real estate deal. And it's absolutely part of God's providential plan. It's all spiritual and it all matters. The story then continues. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. So again, this is like the notary public. This is like the county seal on the closing of the deed of trust. This is the conclusion of the real estate transaction. You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi, all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. He's a successful businessman, right? He just bought an entire estate for 
a father and two sons paid cash instantly, not a problem. So let me ask you this. Ruth, is she poor or rich on the continuum? She's very poor. Boaz, is he poor or rich on the continuum? He's rich. And what we have today in Christianity is a fight between what I'll call poverty theology and prosperity theology. And some will read the story and say, well, if you're godly, you'll be broke like Ruth. Well, just because you're broke doesn't mean you're godly. Now she's godly and broke, but some people are broke not because they were godly, they were foolish. Other people will read the story and say, see, look at Boaz, he loved God and he's rich. If you love God, you're rich too. It's like Halloween all the time. Just walk around with your bag and bills will fall out of the sky. You know, good for you, God's gonna make you rich. And, and the point is, God, God is less concerned if you're poor or rich and more concerned if you're godly because they're both godly. Ruth is exceedingly godly and very poor. Boaz is wealthy and very godly. I don't care if you're poor or rich as your pastor, I just want you to be godly. I just want you to be godly, that's all. And what I love about the story is that you would look at these two people and you would say, they are not a good match for marriage. Moabite, Israelite, widow, never married, uh, non-virgin, virgin, broke, rich, homeless, business owner. You know what they do have in common? They're both godly. They're both godly. So they will have a great marriage because they're both godly. They're both godly. And I want you to see it is less about what you have and it's more about who you are. And if you're godly, whether you have a little like Ruth or much like Boaz, you'll share. True or false, Ruth shared with Naomi. She didn't have much, but she shared it. Boaz had a lot and he shared it with Ruth and then she shared it with Naomi. We've looked at that in the history of the story. So here would be my encouragement to you. Sometimes people say, you know what? I just need to leave the business world and go into full-time ministry. And what I would say is maybe you need to stay in business and see it as a ministry. Boaz is a godly man. He's functioning like a pastor in his company. He is loving and serving others. He's generous as a steward with God's provision. And he's not thinking that there are sort of varsity and junior varsity believers, that the varsity believers go into full-time ministry and the junior varsity you know, believers go into business. What he's saying is, what he's demonstrating rather is, he doesn't need to go into full-time ministry. He needs to live his life as a full-time believer. So I want you to open your understanding. And especially for some of you who are thinking, is God calling me into ministry? I don't know. But if you're in the business world, that is your ministry. And God wants you to be innocent and shrewd. He doesn't want you to sin or cheat or steal. Boaz isn't saying or doing anything that is illegal, unethical, or not truthful but he knows how to negotiate a deal and he puts himself in first position and he is ready with cash on hand to execute instantaneously. And I would say that's all exemplary and all of this happens at the courthouse. All of this happens at, at the steps of the courthouse with a short sale of a piece of real estate and God puts his you know, light on it and says, pay attention to that. That's a really good idea. That's a really good idea to be a good business person who is godly and knows how to negotiate and close a deal so that you can be generous and bless others. Do you get that? Um, 
So he goes on, uh, you are witnesses this day, go back, sorry, uh, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. He's saying, oh, oh and I get, I get to marry Ruth, right? Like we all agree to this, all in, make, make sure that's in the deal. Does he have to marry Ruth? He doesn't. Could he have walked away from this? Absolutely. This other guy's in first position. He could say, you know what? Good luck with that. <laughs> you know, Moabite woman and a bitter ex-mother-in-law. You know, that's not my deal. That's your deal. He doesn't have to pursue them. He chooses to pursue them. That's how God is toward us. God doesn't have to pursue us. He doesn't have to redeem us. He doesn't have to love us. He just chooses to. And that's exactly what Boaz does. Uh, I have bought to be my, she's a Moabite. She doesn't have legal rights. He could have made her a servant or a slave. As my wife, as my wife. Some of you men see your wife as your servant or your slave. She's your wife. She's your wife. She's your wife. What Boaz is saying is, I love her. He sees her as a problem. I see her as a princess. I'm willing to buy acres of land so I can be with that woman. That's, he loves her. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, he even honors her dead husband because the family name and line was going to die because her husband died. And now he's going to marry her and he is trusting God's providence to give them a child. And he is honoring the life and the legacy of her deceased husband, who by the way, was not a great guy. But honorable men honor other men. Boaz is a man like that. The name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So here's what Boaz is saying. We all agree, right? The deal's closed. I get the land. I'll take Naomi. I love Ruth. I'm gonna marry her. She's gonna be my wife. I know she was the homeless gal dumpster diving behind my restaurant, but she loves God. I think it's gonna be awesome, right? That's the story. And they execute the deal. They transact the deal. They then notarize the deal. They certify the deal. They register the deal. God's people sometimes fail to execute business dealings with this kind of wisdom. And sometimes it's because they have been given bad teaching that to pursue a profit, to have life insurance, to make a will, to execute a deal is ungodly. And some of you that are in business, you may wonder, gosh, is what I'm doing godly? Well, let the Holy Spirit convict you if you're saying or doing anything that is untruthful or ungodly. But let me give you a tragic negative example. Um, some years ago, there was a man that I knew. He loved the Lord. He was a newer believer. He had a beautiful family, hardworking, honest, blue collar, slug it out, put food on the table for the family kind of guy. And a house became available. They would have worked well for his family, but it was a major fixer up. It was an older home that needed a lot of work. So we talked to the guy who owned it and the guy claimed to be a believer. They may have even went to the same church, I don't recall. 
And they agreed that this man would move into this house with his family and that he literally would renovate the entire home. He'd take this beat up old home and bring it back to its former glory. So he moved into the home with his wife and his kids, beautiful family, and he worked very hard and their family lived in the middle of this construction project for an extended period of time. And he did this full renovation on this home. And, the, and, and as I understand it, the agreed upon terms were, they, they agreed upon a sales price that he would move in and do the renovations and then he would purchase the home and that the difference that he had caused in value would be his and would cover his down payment because he couldn't afford to otherwise buy the home. And then as he was nearing completion of the construction, the owner of the home came to him and said, I've changed my mind, I think I wanna put it on the market and sell it. And he asked the man, well, what about all the work that I put in and the profits? And he said, well, you and I disagree on this deal. I don't remember it like that. So this man was very distraught. He came to me, Pastor Mark, I need your help. Pastor Mark, I need your help. I said, okay, I love you, I wanna help. Bring me your deal. Bring me your deal. It was like a sheet of paper ripped out of an eight and a half by 11 notebook that they'd hand scratched out, no legal contract, no notary, the other guy didn't even sign it. He said, this is our deal. I said, that's, that's not a deal. That's a death sentence. That's not a deal, that's a death sentence. He said, what can I do? I said, there's nothing you can do. All you can do is go to that man and appeal to him and hopefully he has a conscience, which he did not. This man moved his home out of the house, he moved his family out of the house that he renovated. They lost all of their investment. They got no equity and it destroyed their family. Because he thought, we don't need a plan, brother. We just need to trust the Lord. You need to trust the providence of God and make a plan. And make a plan. And make a plan. He didn't have a plan and then he tried to negotiate a deal from a weak position and as a result, there was no deal. I would go for, some people say, well, when two believers are dealing together, they don't need a contract, they just need to pray and shake hands. I would say believers need a really good contract, okay? Because have you ever done business with your family? Okay, how many of you say once, never again, learn that lesson. Right, when you're dealing with people that are family, you wanna make sure that the deal terms are exceedingly clear because if business hurts family, then that is a double loss. And when we're dealing with the family of God and with one another as believers, it is important to negotiate the deal, to write it down, to make it clear, to walk it through, to execute it, to get it notarized, to get it legalized, whatever is required, that everything is in order and buttoned up. So then if we do disagree, because people do, we could say, actually, this is what we agreed to. These are the deal points, amen? And, and this, this poor man saw his family devastated because he did not have this mindset of Boaz. And, and, and I just wanna encourage you that, that everything we do is spiritual and that includes our contracts and our negotiations, our real estate purchases, uh, the selling of our assets, the writing of our will, the negotiating of our life insurance, the distribution of our assets, all of that is intensely spiritual. And so there is God's providence and then there is also a plan. And then lastly, there is prayer. And, and I would say, Elimelech didn't make a plan, Malon didn't make a plan, 
Uh, Kilion did not make a plan. As a result, these women suffered, and then Boaz is the one who makes the plan, amen? So we wanna learn from these men and we wanna be like that man. So there is providence from God, there is planning on our behalf, and then there is prayer. Uh, Ruth chapter four, verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, so this is, this is the confirmation of the, the contractual negotiation. We are witnesses. This is legally binding. Here we are. May the Lord make, now they're gonna pray. They're gonna pray for this couple. Uh, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, that's the region of Bethlehem and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You know what? She was married for years and had no child. And they're saying, you know what? In the providence of God, we believe that God will provide. So we will pray will pray for a woman who was married and had no child to marry and have a child. They're trusting and praying for the providence and the provision of God. And the book is filled with prayers. Prayer is one of those themes that threads the whole book together. So in chapter one, um, it was prayed that Ruth would get a husband and here he is. And in chapter two, it was prayed that Boaz would be blessed and he was. And in chapter three, it was prayed that Ruth would be blessed. And you come back next week, you're gonna see that she has a wedding and a baby and it's the Cinderella story of the Old Testament and they lived happily ever after. And it's, it's absolutely true that God answered that prayer. And here in chapter four, they're praying for a baby. And God's gonna answer that prayer in chapter four. Every prayer prayed in the book of Ruth is answered by the end of the book of Ruth. So here, here's what I wanna show you. Number one, Pray, number two, plan, number three, in accordance with the providence of God. How many of you are just prayer folks? You're like, I don't need a plan. I prayed about it, Lord. Lord, I trust you, figure it out, amen, right? And God's like, no, 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 no. Pray, prayer's a good start. But out of your prayer, you need to make a plan. What's your plan? What's your plan? And then thirdly, you've got to ask God, what's your providence? Providence is figuring, okay, God, what are you doing? What circumstances have you brought together? What opportunities, what relationships, what obstacles? God, what is your plan? Okay, I wanna make a plan that is accordance with your providence. And I wanna pray so that I know your providence and that my plan is according to your providence. Do you get that? How many of you are folks that are prayers, but not really planners? How many of you are planners and you're not really prayers? You make the plan, you're like, Lord, that's a good idea. Do that, amen. Okay, good job, Lord. Right, our prayer is basically telling God to do what we have already planned out. Prayer is not to get God to execute our plan. Prayer is to give us God's plan. So we assume that God is at work. We assume that there's a way to live in his will according to his plan and purposes. And so we pray that our planning would be congruent and consistent with his providence. And these are the great themes of the book. Prayer has been through the whole book. Providence has been through the whole book. And right here, here comes the theme of planning, planning. Some of you are intensely practical. You do your research, you run your data, you get your analytics, you get all of your, you know, homework done. You're like, I got this, I got a plan. But you haven't prayed and you're not sure you're in God's providence. 
Others of you are very, very spiritual. You're like, I prayed and I trust the Lord. I'm a butterfly and I just follow the Lord. I don't need a plan, Lord. If you want me to move, just change the wind and this butterfly will shift directions. You're kind of hyper-spiritual about it all. How many of you are married to the opposite? God puts you together for two reasons. One, to frustrate you, and the other is to make you better. My wife is the pray and trust the Lord. I'm the, I will get to that after I finish my plan. That's how we do it at our house. My wife prays like crazy and trusts the Lord. And I like plans and backup plans and contingency plans and plans about the plans and research and data and evidence. And she's like, the Lord told me. I'm like, well, that's great. I'll run that through my grid and see if it's in fact true. We work better together. Okay, we work better together. And this is where even in the family of God, we kind of need each other. Some of you are the prey and trust the providence of God. Others of you are the planners and together we can walk better in God's will. What are you strong at? What are you weak at? Are you more spiritual? Are you more practical? Because if you've had success in life or in business, you're like, I know how to do this. I can do this in my sleep. I've negotiated these deals. I know how to sell. I know how to close. I know how to turn you know, a profit, return on it. I got this. I don't even need to pray about it anymore. I don't need to seek the Lord. I don't need to know his will. I've just figured out how to do this. I'm good at it. This is my thing. This is what I do. God's like, don't, don't, don't think like that. Because if I withhold my provision, you'll be like everybody in Israel who for years was like, we live in the house of bread. We get plenty of bread. Every year the crops grow. It's not a problem. We don't need the Lord. And then it was 10 years of famine because they had a plan, but they weren't praying and trusting in the providence of God. Boaz is a guy who does both. He prays, he trusts in God's providence, and he has a plan. He negotiates the plan. He executes the plan. And as a result, God's providence comes to pass and he becomes the redeemer. And this is one of the great words that echoes through the whole of Ruth, a redeemer. A redeemer is one who, when we get ourselves in trouble, they get us out. When we find ourselves in a situation that we can't rescue ourselves, the redeemer comes and gets us. So if you're trapped in your house and it's on fire and a fireman comes and kicks the door down and throws you over their shoulders and carries you out, they're the redeemer. They're the redeemer. Right, if you find yourself in a dangerous, precarious situation and a police officer or a soldier shows up and they defend you and they extricate you and they bring you to safety, they're your redeemer. Ruth and Naomi are in a situation in a circumstance that they can't fix, they can't save themselves, they can't rescue themselves, so Boaz comes. And through them, you gotta come back next week, through them comes a little boy named Obed. Who becomes the, I don't know, great, 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 great grandfather of a guy named Jesus. Jesus, who's the redeemer. He's the great and glorious Boaz. And this whole little love story is part of God's big love story. And so let me close with this. Like Boaz related to Ruth and Naomi, so Jesus is God become a man to be a near relative of ours. Like, Bo, like the women could not save themselves, so we too cannot save ourselves. We stand holy and sin, or we stand rather sinful before a holy God. Like Boaz, who was not obligated to save the women, so Jesus is not obligated to save us. Like Boaz redeemed the women, so it's Jesus who redeems us. Like Boaz satisfied the demands of the law, so Jesus satisfied the demands of the law. Boaz had to work through all the legal requirements that he could redeem these 
two women. And we are sinners by nature and choice. We violated God's law. We're condemned and guilty. That's the verdict. And Jesus finds a way to satisfy and fulfill all the obligations of the law. So he lives without any sin. And just as Boaz paid the price out of his own wealth so that they may be redeemed, so Jesus pays the price out of his own death that we might be redeemed. So the whole picture of Boaz is ultimately a little picture of the big work of the great Jesus. Furthermore, as Boaz loved Ruth as his bride, not a servant, not a slave, but his bride. So Jesus looks at the church, not as his servant or slave, but his beloved bride. Just as one man looked at Ruth and saw a problem, Boaz saw a princess, that's how Jesus sees his church. And lastly, as Boaz took Ruth home and shared with her his, his estate, his kingdom, all of his wealth, his inheritance, he, he sat her at his table, he, he, he absolutely lavished on her grace and generosity. That is the story, my friend, for all eternity. I promise you there will be a day that we get above the loom and we look down at our life and human history and we say, oh, Lord, that's what you were doing. That's how that worked. That was not in vain. You used that. That was in your provision. That was part of your plan. That's amazing, Lord, how you worked all of that out for your glory and my good. And I, I knew it was true theologically, but now I see it is true factually, actually, and historically. Look at what you did, Lord. You worked it all out. You put it all together. You blessed your people. You redeemed them. You loved them. You saved them. I can't believe what you've done. And until that day, we live by faith. We live for that day when our Boaz comes and he redeems us and he takes us home and he sits us at his table and he lays out his plan for all of our life. And then we see it in glory and we see it together forever. And so we're gonna respond now with communion that Jesus has redeemed us through his broken body and shed blood that he literally fulfilled the demands of the law. And he's the one who pays the price for our sin. We're gonna sing because we're happy. We're forgiven, we're loved. God has redeemed us, he's pursued us. I mean, I would hope and trust and pray that Ruth on her wedding day was like, good day for me, I really appreciate Boaz. We are the church of Jesus. We should respond as a bride does to her groom on their day of wedding. And lastly, if you need prayer for anything, go over to the side. We love you, we wanna pray for you. And some of you may be struggling to make a plan. You may be struggling to see God's providence. Let us start with you in prayer. Father, thank you for an opportunity to teach God's word here today at the Trinity Church. Lord, I really love getting to teach the Bible. Lord, I thank you that we can look at this case study of an older businessman and a broken, widowed, homeless, struggling, hungry, Moabite woman. And Lord, we can see that you have a plan in your providence for their good. Lord, as we look at Ruth and her circumstances, I pray that you would infuse us all with hope. If you could take care of her, you could take care of us. If you could provide for her, you could provide for us. Lord, I, I thank you for the example of Boaz. I pray for all of my friends as they go to the grocery store, as they go home to fold their laundry, as they go to work, as they negotiate their business deals, as they execute 
contracts, as they worry about budgets and percentage points and interest rates and deal points, and they're reading the fine print and legal contractual negotiations and obligations, that Holy Spirit, you would cause them to see that that is intensely spiritual that much of your work in this world happens not in the church, not in the temple, not in the synagogue, but at the grocery store, at the food bank, at the place of business, at the courthouse, in our cubicle, at our desk, as we are transacting business, we're actually doing kingdom business. And so Lord, I pray for my friends that we would have wisdom. I pray for us, Lord, that we would pray, pray, pray. I pray that we would plan, plan, plan. And I trust, I hope, I beg that we would trust in your providence, that you are good, that you have a plan, that you're working it out, and that if we do what is right and proceed forward, that you will take care of us and provide for us as you did for Ruth and Boaz in Jesus' good name, amen.